Hey everyone, this is Kike Autry with Psyche Podcast. I'm really excited to share this episode with you. I had a blast recording with David Roberts, who's the pastor of formation at Watershed in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we connected, you know, online through Twitter. He came upon my podcast. It turns out we have a mutual love and appreciation for a variety of different thinkers from Todd McGowan to Richard Boothby to now David Congdon, Roberto Che Espinosa, and a variety of other people out there. And so we just get together and geek out about these awesome psychoanalytic and progressive theological ideas and how they might go together. Uh, this was a blast for me. I can already tell that David's going to be a friend and a kindred spirit, and I'm, I'm just excited to connect with him in future episodes, and I hope that you enjoy this one as well. You know, as always, I want to encourage you to share this with people that are important to you in your life. Uh, share it with someone who either is struggling or who might benefit from some of these ideas, and as always, continue the conversation. I'm really glad that we're kind of making this time to connect and have this conversation. Well, likewise. No, I appreciate it. I, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, trying to think when I found your podcast, it was before you renamed it. Okay. So when, when it was, when it was therapy for guys, yeah, I was actually wondering if you could, I don't know if it's tell that story, but yeah, maybe just kind of trace out kind of how you found it. And it, it really does seem like we have some mutual interest and, in, and even some people that I think you probably know a lot better than I do, but maybe I've had on the podcast and I've enjoyed their work. I thought that could be maybe a place to start. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that I, it was probably when you did one of your conversations with Rick Boothby, I think the one with Pete Rollins. Okay. Um, So I don't know Rick, but I know people who know Rick and I'm a big fan of Rick's work. And especially his most recent two books, which you've spent a lot of time with. Sure. Um, and then I know Pete a little bit. We've um, we've connected for some um, some digital things that he's done with our church, uh, Watershed here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, we've gone through uh, some of his uh, coursework, like Atheism for Lent. I've led groups through that and things like that. Some of our folks have gone out to do some of his things in Ireland and things like that. So. I'm guessing it was when you had Pete and Rick on together to talk about um, embracing the void. Um, And, or or, or what is it? Is is that what the book's called? Or is that the subtitle? Uh, Man, I've I've been drinking some bourbon. So I gotta, I gotta think about this for a second. No worries. worries. Okay, good. No, yeah, no, it's, Um, uh, it's, yeah, it's embracing the void, rethinking the origin of the sacred, I think. Yeah. 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 So it was that conversation. And I think, I think maybe either you or Pete put some, um, just some sound bites on like Instagram or Twitter or something like that. And I was like, all right, I got to listen to this. So, um, went on there and realized that your backlog included, um, some other conversations with Rick. Um, you talked to, I think Todd McGowan, who is a huge, huge person in my life. Um, handful of other names I recognized. Uh, I think a while back you talked to, uh, now, uh, goes by, uh, Roberto Shea Espinoza, but yeah. I think maybe time was still identifying as Robin, um, who's a very good friend of mine. So I think at that point I just subscribed and made you a regular listen. And then in the time since then, um, 
I think you've talked to, you've talked to Boothby, I don't know, four or five more times. All those conversations have been excellent. You've introduced me to a few folks uh, who I wasn't familiar with. I've really enjoyed um, uh, your, you've had a number of group conversations around, um, the, the the Korean philosopher uh, Cho yeah. Han. Yeah, I always like struggle saying his name. I think it's Byung Cho Han. <laughs> yeah, uh, there was some you know uh, there was some stuff with with Barry Taylor, who I'm a fan of. Oh, he's and great. Then most recently, um, I don't. And you'll have to tell me how you ran into. Um, uh, I think I, 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 I might have just been on Twitter seeing some of David Congdon stuff. Yeah, engaging with the Roger Olson pulse around yeah. uh, polyamory and non monogamy, but. Uh, David has been a friend of mine for um, uh, pushing not quite ten years, but seven or eight years now. And dude, that's awesome. Um, as as I did research on him, kind of prepping for that episode, I listened to a bunch of interviews that the two of you did together, and I was like, "Oh, that's so cool that that y'all yeah. knew each other." So I, I just thought that was so neat. Yeah, David's probably. It sounds weird because like he's a friend and he's alive and he's still writing. And, <laughs> He's writing like five different books, but he's probably the biggest influence on my thinking, like theologically, okay. philosophically. Um, and he was the first like scholar type person who I ever kind of just like shot my shot with. Like mm. I, I was reading uh, his, 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 either his first, I think it was, I think it was his first book. It was an adaptation of his dissertation on Rudolf Bultmann. And it's like 900 some odd pages. It's gigantic. It's out of print. Really hard to get now. Uh, really expensive. But I was reading through it and I shot him a Facebook message. Mm. And I was just like, hey, man, um, <laughs> I'm sorry if this is like forward or, 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 you know, you can just ignore it. But I'm reading your book and it's great. And, you know, I followed you. This was back when this was like 2015, maybe something like that. Back when like blogging was still a thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a fairly active theological blog where he would blog around about like Karl Barth and Boltmann and, and stuff like that. And I'd followed his blog for a few years and I just reached out and I was like, Hey, can I ask you some questions? And that was that. So it went from like me, like just kind of dipping my toe in the water being mm. like, what is overwhelming? Like how many, how many DMS on Facebook is it to someone that you've never met before is too many before you've like crossed the boundary. But now I talk to David probably every week. And oh, wow. he lets me, he's, he's gracious enough to let me, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know if proof is the right word. I, I'm not a professional editor like he is, but, 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 you know, you know, some of the books he's writing, like read the intro chapters and stuff like that, which is a lot of fun. And, um, so anyway, yeah. So when I saw that you had, uh, you know, talked to David, I was like, all right, like Kike is literally talking to <laughs> all like pretty much all the people who have been just really <laughs> formative for me um theologically and philosophically and, and a few like david um todd mcgowan a little bit people who i would at least call mentors if not, yeah you know dude that's uh, awesome no man I f- it just makes me so happy and to find like people that are into s- the same kind of shit and and, and yeah can geek out about it is always encouraging <laughs> I've got to say, and obviously, maybe this is more of a conversation we can have offline with David. But you know, he kind of agreed. I, 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 he told me to read like these three chapters in his book, "The God Who Saves," Mm -hmm. and um, I think we're going to try to work on at least a three-part series, kind of going really deep into that. 
I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if you would want to be a part of that. Uh, I, maybe, you know, I, I, if, he, if he's okay with it, I mean, I'm totally game. I, I feel like you could probably help me ask better questions. And I, I've been out of the theology world for a while, and I'm not in ministry now. And so I feel like maybe you could bring an interesting perspective to that stuff. Yeah, if, if, David's, uh, if David's down, I'm, I'd, I'd love to. Um, it is probably, well, I don't know. It's tough. I, I, I've read all his books and, and a few of the unreleased ones as well. And I, I really love that book. And um, yeah, I, I mean, there was, there was probably a year at the church that I work at where almost every sermon I was preaching um, included, if not a direct quotation from that book, some kind of allusion or reference towards it. And gotcha. most of my, um, I would say most of my work in seminary drew heavily from that one and the big Boltman book I referenced a moment ago. So yeah, if, if he's down, I would love to, um, love to be a part of that in any capacity. Okay. Would you be able, you know, even for like this episode, this conversation, would you be able to talk about in what ways his theology or his perspective has shaped you? I mean, you said, right, maybe in, in terms of any living person, maybe he's had the greatest kind of intellectual influence what are some of the things that have really shaped you in terms of his thinking? Sure. Yeah. So um, to sort of preface my answer to that question. So I would say that there's, I like to pretend that there's like more famous at this point, like dead folk who have influenced me. So sure. like Barbara <laughs> Boltman, Hegel, Freud and Lacan, uh, folks like that. But the reality is like, I, I've only skimmed, you know, excerpts from most of these folks, you know, um, Barton Boltman, I've read a little bit more, but really it's, it's, it's folks like David, um, you know, when it comes to a lot of the theological stuff, it's, it's a couple other people I've mentioned, Todd McGowan, um, the late Mari Rudy, who, who, who have been people who have really influenced me more and like a lot of the philosophical, psychoanalytic stuff. Sure. Um, people like Lynn Tonstad, who's a theologian at Yale, who's done a lot of work with queer theory and queer theology okay. is a massive influence on me. Um, so anyway, um, Really, if I had to pick the people who are the biggest influence on me, it's David, it's Todd, it's it's Lynn Tonstad, and with David in particular, he um, he was articulating a kind of theology coming out when I was coming out of. So my background is conservative evangelicalism. Okay. Like I grew up, in, you know, either attended and or worked at like non denominational quasi Baptist churches. I've been a youth pastor um, up until last year. Uh, transitioned out of youth ministry, but was a youth pastor over 10 years, um, kind of the primary, it's the only job I've ever had other than bartender. And so in David's work, I had someone who could speak evangelical or post evangelical, ex evangelical, whatever, sure. whatever you want to say, but was making, um, theological voices like Bart, like Rudolf Boltmann, both accessible, uh, but also compelling. And, and he was drawn to sort of the radical corners of these folks work. Um, mm. so he would call it dialectical theology. His, his Boltman book um, is basically making the case that, without hopefully getting too in the weeds. Um, oh, dude, the, the, I love the weeds, man. Go in right, there. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, 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 so the standard arguments is typically that that um, at some points um, Boltman abandoned the dialectical theological project, mm. uh, turned to sort of something more generically liberal, whereas Bart, you know, through the dogmatics, is the person who remained faithful. And David rejects this. His basic argument is that it was actually Bart who became inconsistent. The early Bart was consistent with what Boltman remained 
you know, um, faithful to through his entire uh, life and project and things like that. And so this, you know, the radical, more radical early Bart that you two touched on when you spoke a few weeks ago, um, you know, kind of talking about some of Bart's ethics and things like that, that Bart and Boltmann, David would argue, I think pretty convincingly. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's won like awards for like the Boltmann society or whatever in Germany. Sure. So, the, 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 yeah, he knows what he's talking language. about. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so yeah, so just uh, uh, basically, a, I, to put it really simply, it's a, it, it, it was a way to feel like I had like an intellectually satisfying, mm. ethically defensible, um, I don't know, progressive theology that I could still recognize as in step or in conversation with you know, continuing the conversation yeah. with, um, you know, my roots. So certainly there wasn't, um, y- you know, it was a, it was an evolution more than a, a hard break. And so, mm-hmm. um, really I would, I, he, he, he rolls his eyes at this actually, but it was <laughs> recognizing, I think a translatability and, and, a, and a sort of a compatibility in what I had sort of gleaned from David, uh, in his work. And what I was seeing in the work of people like Todd McGowan, mm. uh, in sort of this philosophical, psychoanalytic, post-Lacanian project, and I was like, oh my gosh, like, these are talking to each other, like, philosophically, ethically. He's not into psychoanalysis, David's not, so so this sort of falls on deaf ears for him, but I'm convinced of it. Um, but if, if, if not for my love of all things David Congdon and his project, I'm not sure if I would have taken to... McGowan and, and Mario Rudy and, 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 and Boothby and, and some of these other other names that you've also had interest in sure. in the way that I did. That's super interesting, man. I mean, maybe I can we we could talk to David about that because I I've wondered that too. I, I don't see the psychoanalytic strain in in his writing. I haven't read very much so far. I, I was curious yeah. how he would think about that, and, and then also just kind of philosophy in general because I, I know. In some ways, I'm, I'm probably speaking out of turn. I know the Bardians. I don't know if they're anti-philosophy, but 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 I know that's one of Bart's big things. Is you know, yeah. um, so I'm just curious how he kind of navigates some of that. I know they're kind of anti-metaphysics. So mm-hmm. I, I have all these other voices in my head that that love all that other shit. So I, I I'm sensing there may be a bit of a tension, but I, but I'm okay with that. I, I just don't know how to yeah. put it together. Sometimes it doesn't go together, and that's okay too. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. So so. As you get through The God Who Saves, you'll notice that the conception, uh, a notion, not the notion, but a notion of the unconscious mm. is really huge for the way that David is trying to articulate yes. a, no- a, 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 a notion of universal salvation. Now, his notion of the unconscious, he, he, he's drawing from um, bits of sort of the later Bonhoeffer, like prison Bonhoeffer, letters and papers from prison, in a really compelling way. It's not the same thing as like a Freudian or right. Lacanian unconscious, but I don't think think it i don't think it's incompatible like you could take this notion of a pre-reflective unconscious faith to use the theological language and to me it maps really really well so you know so he talks about um i think i think he told you like chapter three is 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 the pivotal chapter in that book yes and it's where he begins to uh, sort of unpack his notion of a um sort of an unconscious Christianity and a salva- an existential salvation, an existential universal salvation where, where through the sort of the, um, to use his language, sort of the, the, 
the co-crucifixion. You know, you know, mm-hmm. you know, we, we we participate unconsciously in 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 the the crucifixion of, of of Christ, and this existentially places us outside of ourselves. So this notion of being placed outside of yourself, I'm like, all right, well, we can start talking about lo- the the Locanian real here. Mm-hmm. We can start talking about the way in which. Um, you know, our, our symbolic and imaginary identity to use Lacanian categories, um, is, is split, you know, you, you know, we're a split subject and, and the, the, you know, sort of the real interrupts our existence in ways that are really, really similar to what David's talking about. Mm. And these, these interruptions are kind of death, you know, in the, in, in the way that Lacan sort of, in his return to Freud, you know, he he pushed back against some of these um, notions in in other Freud interpreters. That there are like all these different drives, right? So you got the arrows, Thanatos, the life drive, the death drive. You know, no, Lacan's like, no, no, there's just the drive. And for Lacan, the drive is um, it's generative, but it's destructive. It's dialectic. He yeah. didn't have that language, but folks like Slavoj Žižek and McGowan and Alenka Zupanchik and all these psychoanalytic theorists they've they've seen this connection between um you know like this hegelian dialectic and this notion of contradiction and and and, and things like that as sort of like a generative negation mm. you know it's a, it's a kind of it's a kind of death that is creative and you know and we're getting into you know stuff that david talks about we're getting into stuff now that rick boothby talks about so so to me i'm like this is this is the whole thing i mean i, I you know i follow you on twitter so you know i've noticed that you've been uh, reading uh, like Death of God Theologians. Oh man, and, don't and, even get me started. <laughs> That's my yeah, latest it, obsession. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's, it's it's the same thing. Like you know, you, you know, so like, um, you know, so you, you know, so for like Altizer, you know, um, kenosis, you know, yeah. you, you know, notion of self-emptying. That's huge for Death of God. You know, at least certain strands of Death of God theology. Um, I think it fits really, really nicely uh, with with the stuff David's doing. I mean, his his mm. mentor. Uh, at Princeton is this guy, Bruce McCormack, who's um, one of the, if not the most renowned living BART scholar today. His work, his constructive work is all about kenosis and the way that that, you know, like the event of God's kenosis is, is, is like indicative of God's being and stuff like that. And that's a theological term, but I think it maps really nicely to, um, you know, notions of like symbolic death and castration and things like that in psychoanalysis. So anyway, I could, I could ramble and nerd out and, 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 and mix my, um, mix my conceptual languages here, mm. you know, endlessly, but, but yeah. So I don't even know if I answered your question about, no, you are, you man. Know? I'm just, I'm just really enjoying connecting with you and, and just, yeah, learning from you and just kind of having this conversation. You know, one of the things I do think about for you, I, I think this is also true for me is I, I don't think all of this great theory and ideas just stay in our head. I mean, it can for me sometimes. <laughs> My wife could could lament about that, but I try to bring it into people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know how that would be perceived by others. Maybe I'm not always doing it the way that it was intended, but it really does shape my living therapeutic connections and relationships with people. I'm I'm curious if it's a similar thing for you. I'm 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 gonna Very I'm gonna much. make that assumption that as a, as a as yeah. a pastor, all of this wonderful shit is trying to be translated into people's lives. And I'm just curious if you could speak about that, like sure, yeah, what that looks like. Yeah, so the church I work at is called Watershed, 
it is um, it was planted just as a generic urban non-denominational church about almost 20 years ago. And without belaboring the story, about halfway into its life cycle, um, just theology and, 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 and pastoral ministry um, in sort of this traditional evangelical sort of conservative expression just wasn't working anymore. And, and really it came to a head around LGBTQ okay. inclusion. And there were, there were queer folks within the church who were showing up and, you know, they were hitting this lid that happens all the time in evangelical contexts where they're welcome, you know, but, oh, well, you can't do that. Or, no, we can't affirm that. And uh, it just wasn't working anymore. And at the same time, you know, the founding pastors were, they were reading, you know, folks like Rob Bell and sure. Brian McLaren and, you know, your, 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 your standard like deconstruction starter kit, <laughs> evangelical deconstruction, not Derridian deconstruction. <laughs> And, um, and, and, and so, you know, they began to, they began to explore and shift and, and, and I'm skipping over tons of details here, but over about sure. a three or four year period, they became a fully, um, LGBTQ affirming, inclusive church, or at least they thought they did. I mean, it turns out that there's a lot more to that than just saying you are. And, and that's been a journey of learning and listening and apologies and education, um, just to become more genuinely affirming and inclusive. And I'm sure there's still work for us to do, but so I came in in 2016, uh, having just gotten, um, sort of soft fired from a, um, evangelical megachurch in Arizona. And I say mm. soft fired because it was one of those things where it was like, I could have dug my heels in theologically and that would have caused a problem, but I opted to just leave, um, maintain relationships. And I go back and forth on whether or not that was the right call, but Sure. Uh, we relocated to North Carolina, found Watershed, and about a year and a half into just being there, um, there was an opportunity to come on part-time as the youth pastor. And so I have been there in some capacity since kind of beginning of 2018. And um, I would describe us as like a progressive post-evangelical church. So what that means is most of our folks, not all, but I'd say a majority of our congregation came out of some sort of evangelical, non-denominational type church environment. So aesthetically or liturgically, we still look fairly, um, excuse me, fairly, um, I don't know, contemporary evangelical. You know, I wore this today. Um, <laughs> you know, we have, um, you know, like a normal band, you know. Sure. Playing. So um, it's not like a high liturgy. Right, yeah. Yeah, so so honestly, honestly, song selection is really tough for us because like a lot of the songs that our folks are are used to are coming from places like Hillsong and Bethel, places that have um, you know they're in the news for the wrong reasons, right? Uh, these <laughs> days, uh, and they're certainly not friendly to to, to queer folk. And so, mm. um, you know, so 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 we change a lot of lyrics, um, or we offer a lot of disclaimers because um, there's just not a lot of um, progressive. Uh, worship music uh, and, 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 and the stuff that's out there for very understandable reasons is often very um, it's full of lament. Mm. And that's, I think that's really important. Um, you know, there's not enough lament, I think in traditional evangelical spaces. Um, but, but yeah, it's hard to, I don't know. It's hard to find a balance anyway. Um, so that's what watershed is. And in that context, uh, yeah, I, work really hard to try to make some of these ideas that you and I are nerding out about um, 
accessible, meaningful. Um, we have a teaching team at Watershed, so there's not any one personality or pastor okay. or speaker. It's a mix of folks who are on staff and folks who are just in the community. Um, like we have a uh, we have a psychotherapist, uh, Kim Honeycutt, who's awesome. She is one of our teaching uh, team members. Uh, a gentleman who used to be on staff, Cedric, who works at a, a nearby nonprofit. Um, a woman named Sean, who's a uh, she's a literature professor at a local university, mm. and then some of our pastors. So it's kind of just a, a rotation. It's very eclectic stylistically. It's eclectic theologically, eclectic influences. And I have the reputation of being the person who's bringing all the nerdy, philosophical, theological yeah. shit. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> both, both in a Sunday, like a sermon setting, but then also I do classes. Like, I mean, we don't call them this, but there's, they're like midweek Wednesday night, Sunday school type classes sure. where, you know, I might do a deep dive into a particular theological topic or sort of like an intersection between spirituality and like justice, abolition, liberation type themes and mm-hmm. things like that. And this is where I get to really sort of let my hair down and um, introduce people to some of the folks we're talking about, you know, folks like um, Congdon and Lynn Tonstad and, and, Mari Rudy, things like that. Sure. Can you tell me a little bit more about Lynn Tonstad? I, I'm not aware of their work. I, I think I'd like to look into yes. them a little bit. Yes. Huge fan. So Lynn, like I, uh, I think I said this, is a is a theologian at Yale. And she, um, her most well-known academic book is called God and Difference. And hmm. so it's an exploration of the Trinity um, and in and, and, and sort of a, a debunking of the ways that the Trinity is often used to map on to like normative social structures, ethical social structures. I mean, if you remember from your conversation a few weeks ago with David Congdon around like, you know, um, non-monogamy and, and ethics and things like that, he talked about the way that Bart is really, really resistant to being able to draw like a one-to-one connection sure. between like God and human ethical positions. Lynn's not necessarily drawing from Bart, but she's making similar arguments against making the Trinity like normative for how we structure our relationships. Yeah. No, it's a great book. I remember dude, back in the day in a part of my kind of conservative, I don't, I guess it was, it was a type of evangelical. It was kind of the reform tradition. That's where I spent some time, um, very conservative reform tradition. And they would, they would take, like trinitary a certain type of trinitarian theology and and they would argue really wanting to argue for like complementarianism mm-hmm. that you know men and women are are sort of equal in essence just like the father and the son are but in terms yep. of roles the yep. man has authority over the woman and so just like the father in some trinitarian modalities has a type of authority over the son but they're equal in essence and yep. I remember spouting that shit and and promoting it, and I see the logic in it, but it's quite fucked up at the same time. Oh yeah. Now you know, as I understand things, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that book, God and Difference, really gets into that. Um, it's it's more academic, both life wise okay. and and um, you know just presentation wise. But it's a it's a good book. Um, her, mo- her 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 more recent and more accessible book, still a few years old. I'm, I would assume she's probably got something on the docket, but sure. uh, she's a, it's, a, it's a little book, still a little academic, but it, it, it's very accessible. It's called queer theology. Mm. And it's, it's like a hundred 
60 pages, very short, very readable. And it's basically just a primer about queer theology. And, and crucially, and this is kind of one of her opening arguments, it's not an apologetic. So there's some really great apologetic books out there. Sure. If you, if you just need to sort of like win the argument at Thanksgiving, you know, so if, 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 if you are someone who identifies as a Christian and, or, or, or you have folks in your life who identify as a Christian and you're trying to make the case that, Hey, like not only should we humanize, but we should affirm and celebrate the queer folk in our life. Um, there, there's some great books out there. Um, Lynn's book is not trying to do that. It's basically sort of taking for granted the dignity and humanity of our LGBTQ mm. siblings. And it's doing something more constructive, more, um, in my opinion, more interesting, um, you know, exploring what, what are the implications of queer lives, queer bodies, queer experiences on our theology and vice versa. Um, really provocative book, really, really good. And that was the book that got me really, really into queer theory. I'm not myself a queer person. Um, I'm cisgender, I'm straight. Um, but I just really, really resonate with both queer theology and queer theory. I think, um, I think maybe it gets a little bit into, um, like spectrum autism, neurodivergent experiences and and, and not fitting into normative categories of masculinity or of, um, you know, things like that. And are are you familiar? And I've actually spoken with her trans scholar on the autism spectrum in queer theory. Nick Walker has a book, Neuro Queer Heresies. I'll I'll, I'll text it to you. It's phenomenal, but it tries to navigate that intersection of yeah, like like neurodivergence kind of stuff mm-hmm. and then queer theory. It's very good. I think there's a lot of connections there. Yeah. No, I, I would love to, yeah, I'd love to read that. Um that that's sort of been my point of connection with um a couple of the other folks we've mentioned. Um uh Roberto Shea's Minoza, yeah, who, who become a good friend, uh Dr. Rob and I. Um we have very different uh philosophical influences, which we um we we gently spar over, but but but, <laughs> but, but, but just sharing um you know, certain sort of, um, brain chemistry experiences. Um, and then, and then I I would say I I became aware of, of the late Mario Rudy through Todd McGowan, but yeah, same here. It was, yeah. Yeah. And and Mari, Oh my God. Incredible, incredible human. Um, tragedy. I mean, just maybe a month, you know, since we, we lost Mari, but, um, such a compelling writer. So accessible, so practical and her book um uh what is it called um the ethics of opting out Mm. is maybe my favorite book on queer theory that i've read very accessible very practical um not in any way theological but one of the if not the most like pastorally accessible books Mm. and applicable books i've ever read and so so yeah i have this weird web between you know folks like rudy folks like tonstad doing work at sort of the intersections of um identity um you know queer theory queer theology um you know lynn to some extent rudy obviously bringing in the psychoanalytic angle which gets me in conversation with folks like todd uh, folks like rick boothby um pete rollins pete's doing more theology i'm I don't know how comfortable Todd is calling. He would never call what he does theology. 
Um, but I think that, and I don't want to ever impose this on him, but there is a really strong theological undercurrent to a lot of his work. And I've told him that he doesn't disagree his Hegel book massively, but even, even some of his, uh, some of his psychoanalytic work. Um, I've even gotten him to watch watershed sermons, uh, a few times and, and more so to critique me, you know, I'll try to, I'll try to apply something I learned from him or, or, or in psychoanalysis theologically or, or in a practical kind of sermon context and kind of say, Hey, how badly did I butcher this? You know? Um, I did a sermon last year where I tried to make a connection between the, the biblical notion of Satan or the devil and, um, the superego, like mm. the psychoanalytic notion of the superego. Um, I, I thought I, I totally fucked it, but Todd liked it. So, <laughs> well, uh, can you, can you speak about it? I'm intrigued, man. I would love yeah, to yeah. hear about that. <laughs> so, so. Basically, idea at least at least in the way that folks like Todd, maybe folks like Zizek, um, understand the superego, is that we normally think of the. Uh, I don't know, like when people think of the superego and like the id versus the ego and things like that, um, you know, they often try to like point to like contemporary political figures or or public figures, you know, um, kind of say, oh, like that's fill in the blank, you know, and so someone like Donald Trump often gets associated with the id, you know, kind of this, this animalistic sort of, um, y- 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 you know, embodiments of just like this unconscious energy. But Todd's point, I think very convincingly argued is that, that someone like Trump is much more actually indicative of the superego because the superego is this overarching, just hegemonic demand command to, um, to, to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And, I use that word enjoy cautiously because I mean it in a really psychoanalytic sense. You know, it's the it's the English translation of the French word jouissance. You know, enjoyment in, in a psychoanalytic sense is the pleasure we suffer, perhaps would be a good way of saying it. And so when Trump is rallying his base and getting his people riled up at these rallies and stuff like that, it's it's just really tapping into a certain kind of enjoyment or jouissance because it is um you get to both transgress. There's a transgressive element to, to enjoyment or jouissance, but then you also get to obey. So you get to transgress and obey at the same time. You're obeying the the master that that Trump is embodying, but you're also transgressing the symbolic norms or laws or categories. You know, you, you, you know, you're, you're you're transgressing over, you know, the, the the quote unquote woke or politically correct expectations that our society has sort of placed upon us. And so, in Satan. Or in, in in the devil and in, in, in some of these 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 um, biblical expressions, um, it, it becomes super egoic because there's there there, there, there there's an obedience element, mm. there's a transgression element, but there's always with the super ego, there's always a promise of wholeness on the other end. Um, you know, if you just do this, you know, then then on the other end, um, you'll to use Genesis three language, you know, you'll be like God. So it's always, it's very binary, you know, um, think, think the fall narrative, the knowledge of good and evil, you know, the temptation from the serpent and sidebar, I realize Hebrew Bible scholars that like, I'm, this is a very creative interpretation of the story. I'm, this is not 
this is not faithful. You know, if you want to, if you want to know what it meant in context, like go talk to a good Jewish scholar. Yeah, but like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not what I'm trying to do here. But, but this is the interesting um, stuff. <laughs> yeah, but like, okay, so 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 the promise of the serpent, you know, who who retrospectively or retroactively by 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 um, you know proto Christian writers gets identified as Satan or with the devil. Um, he's basically promising a kind of wholeness, you know, be like God. And, and the, the means of the right to that wholeness is, is, is this sort of dualistic, um, binary, either or, in, out, pure, impure, you know, knowledge of good and evil. You will be able to sort your world, divide your world according to right, wrong, pure, yeah. impure. And when you do that, that's the thing that'll create, you know, proper wholeness, proper, proper divinity. You'll be like God. Um, and, and, and the superego functions very similarly. It, 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 it posits a kind of scapegoat, uh, you know, an enemy, um, an other of the other who, you know, can be, um, who, who, who embodies perfect enjoyment and, 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 um, so anyway, it, I'm, 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 I'm getting in the weeds a little bit here, which I know you said you like, but, um, but really, really, really there's a, there, there's a sort of, there's a sort of, um, consistent logic between the mm. way that the Satan figure, not just in, um, not just in, in Genesis three, but we see this in some of like the, the temptations in the wilderness, um, right. with Jesus sure. in, 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 the, in the gospel accounts, you know, where, you know, you know where certain kinds of both, there, there's an obedience and a transgression element, sort of being, you know, with a wholeness on the other side being promised. Um, and we see this in the way that like our capitalist economy, you know, sort of maps on to a certain kind of notion of promise and wholeness in, in exchange for a certain kind of sacrifice, you know? Um, so anyway, it's, it's, it's underdeveloped. Um, but, but it, it made for a fun sermon. And Dude, I love it. Uh, so, I, okay. So I, I have a question for you. Just kind of throw this idea out, see what you think. I think there's some similarities with what you said, but and I don't. I, I'm, I'm assuming if someone has written about this, is probably Peter Rollins or someone maybe in the um, in the Lacanian world. But okay, I'll set up a couple things. So, are, are you familiar at all with? Um, he was kind of the founder of this type of therapy called REBT, which is like the precursor to something called CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Sure. I know CBT. Okay. So what's the name? So, so REBT, it's rational emotive behavioral therapy. That it's kind of like a precursor to CBT. I, I, okay. I'm not even endorsing it, but but the figure, this guy named Albert Ellis, he would say that um, what trips up most people is like this rigidity in their thinking, and 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 one of the ways he would try to kind of like flesh that out with clients was kind of joking a little bit and he would say you know you, you <laughs> instead of um you've got to stop masturbating he would say you've got to stop masturbating <laughs> like like in other words that, yeah. that 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 modal verb should or must becomes this like injunction that that requires that we do a certain type of thing right and that kind of trips people up yeah. they they think that's reality so i was thinking and, and right, Peter Rollins turned me on to that Byung Chohan guy. He talks about the achievement society versus mm-hmm. the disciplinary society. Yep. And, and so the, here's what I want you to think about. So if in the disciplinary society, the modal verb, the injunction, the, the super egoic kind of like command is 
you you must or you should following Ellis. Do you think for the achievement society, the kind of super egoic injunction, the the new modal verb is you can. You you yeah. you can do this. You can do that. And that in some ways that can be just as oppressive because it creates this like never ending hamster wheel of there's always something a little bit further out, whether it's wholeness or whether it's just capitalistic, you know, you can do this. I I think about Instagram culture. I see a lot of men like bro culture, workout culture. There's some really good things about it, but then it can become very toxic because it's never ending. And, you know, you can always do something more. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. could be a so, type of super uh, egoic sort of thing. I think, I, I think, yeah, I think you're spot on. You, you, you had a, you had a, you did an episode with, um, with Pete's friend Helen, right? Helen Rollins. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Helen, um, and her, her, she's got another podcast that she does with a few other folks called The Lack. Uh, great name for a podcast. And, That's a great name for a podcast. Um, <laughs> in some of the early episodes, she, um, the way that she sort of names sort of the psychoanalytic super egoic sort of relationship that we have to capitalism. She calls it an ideology of promise. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't know if that's unique to her or, or, or if she got it from someone I'm getting it from her, but, uh, but basically this idea, you know, you know, the way that psychoanalysis, I'm sure you know, this probably gets, it sometimes gets a bad rap in, in, in the sense that people say that, you know, um, it's basically just a response to capitalism. Sure. You know, so, 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 so folks say that, okay, yeah, fine. The stuff that Freud discovered and Lacan toyed with and all these other folks sort of have played with, that's all well and good. But like, you know, in, 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 if we can get, you know, into like a post-capitalistic society, you know, so this is often like a Marxist criticism kind of wanting to move past, um, you know, sort of just the, the, the bourgeois notions of capitalism. And if we get to a, you know, purely dialectically materialist society or whatever, um, and, and, and I would argue on the backs of some of the other people we've talked about that like, no, like capitalism is insidious because of the way that it is parasitic upon the way that our psyche is already structured yeah. when it comes to desire and, 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 uh, and, and sort of this super egoic relationship to wholeness and promise. Um, and like, more and more, especially, you know, you mentioned Instagram and, and social media and just, just the degree to which, um, the degree to which certain, certain expressions of wholeness are promised to us materially, uh, socially, relationally at the level of identity and things like that. And, um, and of course, you know, almost in a, in, in a sense that's so basic that you want to gloss over it, but really is, is I think fundamental, like, none of these things will save you, you know, you, you know, in, in fact, the, the, the worst thing that could happen to you is for you to, um, achieve them or acquire them or, or, or reach them right. because they're, they're complete castration, their emptiness, their, their, their inability to, to not just save in any sort of like more cosmic metaphysical sense, but, but, but even satisfy in a really basic sense is going to be found wanting, but you know, that is what makes capitalism sticky because there's always more. There's always something additional um, that can be um, achieved. And it's really, really easy then to um, imagine um, unconsciously and consciously um, obstacles, you know, so, so, you know, one of Todd's more recent books, uh, Tom McGowan's the racist fantasy, for example, it explores the way that um, 
the logic of racism, you know, is parasitic and symbiotic upon, you know, sort of this, this ideology of promise within capitalism. You know, you know, there are certain, there are certain notions of wholeness that are built into the fabric of this country, of our society and things like that. And, you know, um, obviously they're, they're, they're fanciful, you know, the American dream and, sure. and, and, and things like that. And so we have to posit some kind of, um, some kind of opponent, some kind of obstacle, some kind of reason, you know, why, um, standing out of way, basically taking on the, 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 the Canian role of the, um, objet a, the object petit a, you mm-hmm. know, the, 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 um, um, the impetus, the obstacle that is also impetus in a, in, in a certain way and the other, and of course the most accessible other is the racial other, um, you know, sort of becomes, becomes that scapegoat, becomes that enemy, you know, and, and, and Todd's argument is much more um, rich than the way I'm oversimplifying here, simplifying here. But, but yeah, to me at least, I see these really, I don't know, rich in the in the theoretical sense connections between some really really practical societal, pastoral, ethical challenges. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know things that are I think on the minds of a lot of people right now around, you know anti-racism and queer inclusion and anti-capitalist positions and um you know even even you know there's a um there's a guy tad delay who's um doing a lot of really really i've wanted to reach out to him i i don't know him at all but but he just seems like somebody that is kind of in this world some so i'm glad you're mentioning him he's been on my list of people to try to connect with Definitely talk to Ted. Okay. I don't know Ted personally. I've read his books. Um, his he's got this book against that came out a few years ago that I think really really uses psychoanalysis. I think to really accessibly explain what people are seeing and experiencing um, with um, kind of conservative evangelical culture these days and the rise of Christian nationalism and things like that. He's got a book coming out next year looking at just the logic of climate change and climate change denialism and things like that. And he's done a lot of work on this, like, like, like a, a lot of which even goes over my head as far as a lot of the climate science and things like that. Oh, but, geez, man. Um, I, I get lost so quick with that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but I trust him. I mean, he, he, he's a good guide and mm-hmm. um, and can really sort of make some of the, some of the most practical like psychoanalytic insights. And he's got, I, I could, I could be wrong about this. I believe he has a theological background, and so he's able to he's able to kind of code switch, so to speak, and talk in these different sure. um, these different like conceptual categories. Um, but really, kind of, I think, demonstrate compellingly that a lot of these things are connected, and and and, and the sort of um, I think it's a compelling case that I think oftentimes with the liberal or progressive um, solution is ineffectual. Which mm. is, you know, um, it's 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 facts. You know, it's it's, yeah, it's having the right data. facts, having the right data, having better information. You know, it's the T-shirts that say, you know, like, um, you know, in this house we believe in science or or, or trust the right. science or whatever. Right. Or it's it's Lacan's university discourse. Yeah. You know, it's it's um, and don't get me wrong. I mean, it's all it's good data it's, it's, it's good facts. It's, 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 it has its place and it's important, but, um, you know, I think one of the fundamental insights of, of psychoanalysis, um, and I think, you know, you could argue that there's a theological 
expression of this as well is like people people don't make decisions for the reasons that they think you know they you you, you know people don't um i don't know you you can you can flesh it out in any number of ways i mean i mean you actually have me dipping my toes a little bit into a little bit more depth psychology and, and and things like that one of my best friends here at watershed is a big Carl Jung guy. And so I'm like, Oh, okay. I need to listen to more Kike's episodes on, you know, Hillman and stuff like that. Just so I can speak. Yeah. Get into Hillman. Cause I think, I think he will be an avenue into depth psychology that, that I think you'll resonate with truly. Yeah. I mean, I've got, I don't know, three or four books that you've, you, you you've talked about or mentioned in passing, like on my like Amazon wish list and things like that. Um, but anyway, all, all that to say is like, like, you know, like parse it however you like. Yeah. There is an unconscious element to for sure. To the way that we organize our lives. And inevitably that is going to play a part in the way that we, you know, address things like racism and heteronormativity, any form of normativity. Sure. For um, sure. So okay, and, can, can I ask you a yeah. question? Okay, so did, did you did you end up reading McGowan's uh enjoyment left and right? I haven't read it all the way through. Um, I'm very, very familiar with his okay, big idea. Okay, okay, So, you know, he talks a lot about um, sort of almost coming together around a type of non-belonging. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay, so, so how do you take that idea and put it into conversation with, this may be like oversimplifying it, but maybe an error on, on the more progressive side of, of collapsing into like identity politics and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of elevating that as the thing that we have to kind of rally around. How, it, that seems to be in real tension in my mind. Yeah. Like, how, yeah. How, how do you parse that out given that you actually work with a lot of queer folk and. Yeah. It's tough because I think sometimes when people hear, when people experience any kind of pushback against identity politics, of course, they're going to be most familiar with conservative pushbacks, right? Which, you know, and 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 so it, it, it's it's trying to like. Oftentimes, I will lead with um, I'll, I'll put my like my policy cards on the table first, and kind of say, "Hey, just just to be super clear, like I am for some of the same policy aims that you're for, whether yeah. it's reparations or you know, or elevating um, you know full 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 protections for for queer folk." In, in the public sphere and things like that. So oftentimes it's helpful just to lay those cards on the table and say, sure. hey, like, we're on the same team. We're just trying to figure out how to strategize here. Um, the other thing to keep in mind, and Todd talks about this in his prior book, um, Universality and Identity Politics. I haven't read of, that one. Um, it, it, it's a good companion piece. Actually, I, I don't know if he thinks of it this way, and, and this could be an outdated opinion as soon as his next book comes out, but like... <laughs> yeah. University, universality and identity politics, racist fantasy, and enjoyment right and left or left and right, whatever. I don't remember what order he puts it in. The enjoyment book. It's like a nice little trilogy mm. sort of – you know, it's like, a, it's like a contemporary politics of, I don't know, Todd's psychoanalytic theory or something like that. Sure. Um, but it names the fact that even in, in its original conception, like identity politics, like um, – you know, in the, in the in the latter half of the 20th century, meant something different than it's come to mean now. You know, it was it was more um, it was more observing ways that structures and systems, um, you know, sort of overlapped and sort of compounded upon each other, um, and 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 
it was exploring ways of collective organizing and things like that. And sure. Um, it's, it, 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 it's, it's almost been neoliberalized. Mm. Uh, a guy, uh, another guy who might be interesting for you to talk to, um, Adam Kotzko. Uh, oh, has done- yeah, I, I feel I, I, doesn't, doesn't he have a book on like, uh, theology and Zizek and he's got, he's got a lot of books. Uh, neoliberalism's demons is excellence. Okay. Um, the Prince of this world is a whole book around Satan. Mm. Uh, real, real, real smart dude. Um, and he's, 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 he's explored this in like articles and blog posts and stuff around the way that like, like identity politics doesn't mean people mean different things by it. You know, there's okay. a, there's a, there's sort of a, 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 a lay or sort of like, um, I don't know, Twitter level version, very online version, which sure. is very, it's very individualized, very atomized, very neoliberalized. And then there's the, like the original, like, you know, the, um, uh, what is it called? The, uh, uh, Combehe River Collective, you know, it was this, this, this queer, these queer black socialist women who kind of, um, you know, who coined some of these ideas around like identity politics, intersectionality. Mm. So it just, it meant something different in its conception that is much more friendly and compatible with the sort of politics that folks like Todd are trying to articulate. So anyway, that's a, that's a tedious disclaimer, but, um, but no, the other piece of it, I think, is is like Todd in 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 universality identity politics. I think makes a pretty compelling case that like that often like like um, advocating for disproportionately marginalized folks and a universal leftist emancipatory politics. These aren't mutually exclusive categories. And he uses he uses the Black Lives Matter movement as an example. And I know that there's controversy. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to betray my own ignorance. I actually don't know where some of the facts on the ground stand around, like the actual formal organization, Black Lives Matter. And I know that there's some controversy around their finances and, and some of their tactics and things like that. I, I have no comments on any of that. I just, I'm, I'm not informed. But Black Lives Matter as a concept or as a slogan, as a, as a, as a rallying cry for the left, McGowan's point is that. It is he, he he his argument is that Black Lives Matter is actually a universalist statement. Universalist, not in like the who everyone's going to heaven sense, but sure. universalist in the like collectively, um, you know, inclusive sense. Um, precisely because it, um, it 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 sort of organizes or draws attention to, it centers, it elevates um, what's missing or, or or the lack or the absence, you know. Um, by, by shining a light on the ways that our system fails, it actually, it, it's almost like, you know, you know, what's the Weezer song, um, the sweater song, you know, you, you <laughs> yeah. know you're, 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 you're pulling a thread and, and, and it, 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 you begin to see the ways in which the system that, that is most visibly failing black folk, like is also failing everyone, mm. you know, and, and, you know, it's a it, it, it's an inroads towards um, towards solidarity insofar as it you know it, it 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 reveals the inefficiencies of the system first and foremost for for you know black folk or brown folk or queer folk, um, but then it also gives you an inroads to see the ways in which notions of whiteness mm. or normative notions of masculinity or normal you know normative notions of what is neurotypical like. These don't work either. These are these are facades as well. Right. 
and and these um and it is the assumption that there is some sort of normal some sort of whole some sort of in so to speak that can be achieved if we just fill in the blank you know either get rid of the the bad folks or get rid of the whatever group or identity or position we've chosen to other um it unravels any notion that some kind of additive wholeness or completeness can be achieved either by bringing all the right folks together, which is the progressive position yes. or partitioning out all the right and the wrong folks separating from each other, which is the, the conservative position. And, you know, so in enjoyment right and left, basically Todd's arguments is that most of our politics exists on what he would argue is a right wing spectrum, you know, so there's a conservative, moderate and progressive valence of this, you know, mm. so the conservative would say, and this is, this is how I've put it in a sermon, which is a bit of an oversimplification, but the conservative would say, you know, if we could just go back, you know, back to some imagined, it's always imagined, romanticized, nostalgic notion of like an Edenic, like Garden of Eden, Edenic sure. past. You know, if we can just go back to the way things were, they never really were that way, but it's, it's made up. If we just go back to the way things were, usually by getting rid of whoever or whatever has tarnished you know, then everything will be whole and complete and, and wonderful. Well, the progressive, again, Todd would say this is still a right-wing position. The progressive is saying, no, if we can just go forward, you know, heaven, new heaven, new earth, new creation, whatever, if we can just go forward to this utopian future, mm. which usually involves a notion of inclusion, but it's a notion of inclusion that takes for granted some, even if minute exclusion, you know, who, the 1%, the, yeah. you know, fill in the blank. Or the moderate would say, oh, no, no, you're both wrong. We just need a perfect balance, you know. But all of them are imagining a very almost binary, dualistic notion of wholeness or completeness. Um, whereas the, the the notion of – Todd's notion of universality is is, is the, the one thing we have in common. The one universal we have is lack. It's, hmm. it's, 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 um, it's an absence. It's void. It's a negation. Um, and this is, this is, I think, where he is most – conversant not only with you know actual sort of intellectual friends of his like rick boothby but this is where to bring this full circle this is where i think he's most conversant with with tonstad with todd with with david congdon you know for david universality is um is co-crucifixion it's this Mm. unconscious participation in the in 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 christ's god forsakenness it's this it's this void it's this absence it's this death it's this lack that takes us outside of ourselves and being outside of ourselves fissured, separated, ruptured away from all of the things that we cling to, to secure ourselves, to save ourselves, to, um, you know, and that can be an identity. It can be a group. It can be a, it can be anything. Um, that absolute vulnerability that David's talking about, that's the thing that frees us to be with and for one another, Mm. you know, um, that's so well said man wow well, well it's the same thing todd's saying todd is saying you know a collect you know a universal non-belonging a collective non-belonging it's a, it, it, it's 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 a different relationship a different posture um when it comes to our lack instead of seeing lack as something to be overcome we see lack as as, as constitutive to 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 our very being to our very existence it's something to be it's something to be embraced as generative Mm. as creative not as um destructive and so so yeah there's a negation there's a void there's a negativity to it but that negation um todd actually introduced me to a new word the word is fecund 
It's it's it's, yeah. it's 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 a limiter. It's a border that is fertile. It's generative. It's it's, um, you know, the way that the way that limits and borders are, are understood psychoanalytically is 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 you know um, like a quilting point. Use a psychoanalytic concept. It's it's um, they create meaning, new meaning. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's 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 like when you try to hold a um like a volleyball or a basketball in, in a pool, like under the water. It, <laughs> I did it, that this it, weekend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 The harder you hold it, the more it wants to burst out Pop in out, new yeah. unexpected ways. It's <laughs> generative. Um, and then, and then without, you know, belaboring it, cause, cause I know we're short on time. Um, a lot of what Lynn Tonstadt is doing with queer theology and queer theories is very similar. Just, mm. you, you know, mining and, and, and exploring the ways in which the, 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 the anti-normativity of queer experiences, queer identities, queer expressions of, um, of body, of form, of, 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 of any, you know, any number of ways that, you know, the queer life expresses itself does the same thing. It, 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 it's the relationship to this lack or this limit that is, um, is generative of, 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 of the new thing of possibility. Um, mm. So. So yeah, it's, 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 I think it's super pastoral, um, but it's, the, the, there's two challenges that I have to constantly overcome. One of them is conceptual, just making these ideas um, accessible, practical, make sense. And then the other one is uh, they're uncomfortable. Like we, we're, we're addicted to, and, and, and you've explored a lot of this stuff in, in, in a lot of the Chohan work. I mean, we're addicted to uh, activity, we're addicted to wholeness, we're addicted to success, we're addicted to all of these things that all of these notions of these folks that we're talking about in various capacities are resistant to. Well, man, and I feel like this would take a whole nother episode to try to unpack. I, One of my last episodes, you know, I have to agree with uh, the, the scholar. He said he wasn't a post-Jungian, he was a pre-Jungian in that there's so much in Jung's stuff that is so fucking deep and profound, like we'll never fully understand it. But but I'll say he has this one quote that I think resonates with all this. He says, neurosis or, you know, like our profound psychological predicament is that we, we have a very difficult time, almost an impossible time bearing what he calls just normal, ordinary suffering. Mm-hmm. We just fucking run away from it and just, yeah, come up with all these ways to try to push it away or, you know reinterpret it in different ways and so i i think the vision that you're casting the one that i want to cast is a type of bitter pill to swallow yeah yeah. it it, it is definitely not you know easy but uh but i think it's correct (laughs) it's it's something that i want to continue to give my life to (laughs) yeah yeah i can't explain why like I, i i've been drawn to it like a moth to a flame i mean it's if, if I'm being completely honest, it's yes, I'm convinced of these various folks that we've listed and mentioned tonight's arguments, but to some degree, I mean, I'm convinced because I want to be convinced. I mean, yeah. there is something. Oh, same here. There is something that resonates with me at a free, reflective, or unconscious, or, or experiential, all of the above level, in a way that just feels true, and I think it preaches. I think it. I hope it saves in, in, in some emancipatory, practical, but also spiritual existential sense. But um, but yes to the bitter pill. That's that's a feature, not a bug, I think. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. 
Okay, man, I, I, I do have to kind of sign off, but man, it yeah, has no been worries. amazing to connect with you and to just nerd out about these things. I, I really hope this isn't the last time that we have a conversation. Absolutely, man. I really appreciate it. And um, you got my number now, anytime. Happy okay, to, awesome. Happy yeah. All right, man, would you mind ending by just saying continue the conversation? Absolutely. Continue the conversation. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. See you, dude. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope that you were inspired and challenged by the conversation. I'd love to hear from you and I would love to connect. The best way to reach me is to go to my website. You can go to Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y. That's kikeatri.com. And there you'll find all my contact information. Or if you just Google my name, Kike Autry, you'll find my Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram accounts, and you can reach out to me through those means. You can also check out the website of the practice that I work at, Katie Counseling for Men. That's katiecounselingformen.com, where I serve as the lead men's counselor, and you can reach out to me through that. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, or if you have any ideas on individuals that I could interview, please let me know. I'm always grateful to hear from my listeners. Uh, This wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you so much. And as always, continue the conversation. Mm -hmm.